Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, June the 2nd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan, joined today by Harry McGee and Jennifer Bray from our political staff. You're both very welcome. In a couple of minutes, we're going to be discussing the impending Dublin Bay South by-election. But first, Harry, you were at yesterday's press conference in which the government laid out its plans for for the next year or so in terms of emerging from the recession and financial implications of that. That's right, uh, Hugh, and uh, it's a €4 billion euro plan, including uh, €3 billion of exchequer funding and then almost a billion euro in funding from the EU. And uh, essentially, uh, the bulk of the money is going to really go towards uh, continuing employment support. So the employment wage uh, supplement scheme, which essentially gets the state to pay employers to keep their employees on the payroll, uh, will continue until the end of the year at least, and might continue even in some form right into 2022. And um, it's a costly item. It's going to cost €2 billion this year, but uh, there are 300,000 people who are receiving their wages courtesy of the state rather than from from, from their employer. And uh, the government thinks that it's critical in terms uh, of a recovery. Pascal Donoghue, I thought, was interesting yesterday. He said that there's definitely going to be a rebound during the summer and everybody's been talking about this pent-up demand. And I think once the uh, slice gate is opened, uh, we'll have a a very uh, busy summer in terms of people spending uh, cash that they've saved up on holidays, on retail and on other things. And we'll see a return uh, of a lot of sectors Uh, that have been shuttered uh, for a period of time. But the concerning government is that a rebound does not make uh, a recovery and that once that rebound comes to an end in autumn, uh, that there might be difficulty in uh, sustaining it and making it into a fully-fledged recovery. And employment is really high at the moment. Uh, There are over 300,000 people still on the PUP. There are 170,000 additional people who are receiving uh, unemployment benefit of one kind or uh, another. Uh, so they have to get those numbers down. And their hope is that next year, 2022, that employment will fall uh, to between 8 and 10% of the uh, overall employment situation. If they get that, uh, they'll be relatively well-placed uh, to ensure that the economy recovers. If they don't get that, uh, they're going to be in the soup as it were, uh, politically. So there are a couple of controversial elements to what was announced yesterday. PUP has been tapered out. Uh, There's going to be incremental drops of €50 in September, November, and then finally in February uh, 2022. Uh, That caused ructions uh, with the opposition who said there'll be a lot of people who still don't really have jobs to go back to, uh, who are completely dependent on on PUP and uh, will be left... uh, dangling essentially by the government. So that is a bone of contention. I think Sinn Féin and the Social Democrats in particular, as well as Labour, uh, will be pummeling at that point home in the uh, coming 
uh, weeks. There's also a very big green element uh, to this uh, package. It's almost a billion euro, or, or it's over 500,000 of the billion euro from the EU. And a lot of that money would be going into retrofitting and into this new uh, suburban train system in Cork. So you're going to get jobs out of that. And you're going to get a lot of retraining because uh, I'd say about 100,000 uh, of the people who are on PUP won't really have any jobs to go to. Uh, so they're the people who will be targeted by government uh, for retraining. So it's a big and ambitious plan. And it's the, the ace that the government has really uh, that it's laying on the table in the hopes uh, that the economy can recover on the back of it. Yeah, it's 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 interesting, John, isn't it? I mean, we look at countries that are a little bit further ahead of us on the reopening front, the United States, and to some extent the United Kingdom as well. And we are seeing that bounce, that economic bounce, which Pascal Donoghue is anticipating. I know it. I look around my suburb that I live in in Dublin, and every second house seems to be having some kind of minor renovation happening, a extension built or the roof being lifted. There's white vans and 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 trucks everywhere. But then alongside that. There are shops on our main shopping streets that are never going to reopen. And there are other businesses that will suffer such scarring that those jobs aren't there anymore. So there's a kind of there's a fine balance between treating those two quite different parts of the economy and getting through to whatever the next year may bring. Yeah, I think there is. And, and I think what you're talking about there highlights the sort of the, the growing and very deep inequality that I think we'll only be more entrenched over the next couple of years as we move out of the pandemic and we see some certain sectors that will, like you use the word scarred, be scarred, um, shops that may not reopen, businesses that will remain closed. Um, and I suppose if you look at the level of youth unemployment as well, it is really still staggeringly high. Um, and I think that there is this story really of the pandemic. You know, you're talking about looking at the window and seeing people who are getting their house done up or, you know, there are people who held on to their jobs um, and, and, you know, did okay. Um, so there, there's this two kind of, two tales to the pandemic really. Um, and when the government talks about tapering off supports and moving out of the pandemic and, you know, th- the truth is really they cannot give any such certainties uh, about that because as we know, um, this virus has a way of kind of being very unpredictable, um, of surprising us the most. And I'm thinking now particularly of these different variants and I know they've renamed the variant and, and, and we've got the Indian variant and the Delta variant and all this now. But I think that even within government circles, even within cabinet, there is an awareness that this is the plan that they would like to see happen. They would like to see that we move out the other side of the pandemic and we could taper off these supports because obviously it's not feasible to continue them for as long as we have. I mean, you just the, the, the numbers are eye-watering, really. I think Pat had an interesting line in his uh, column the other day saying, you know, these figures would have been absolutely unthinkable just before this pandemic. And now it just is, you know, in the drop of a pan in the middle of a week. Um, so, I, you know, it'll be really interesting to see how the government addresses those deep inequalities. And I'd be really interested to see how they how they tackle youth unemployment, um, even though obviously their hope is that as we move towards the end of the year and those remaining sectors reopen, that more and more people come off the, the pandemic unemployment payment um, and transition then onto the job seekers payment. It's what happens then, I think, to those industries that are scarred, which would be interesting. And then I guess the backdrop of this, we're going to have a by-election, the first by-election of this particular dull term. Harry, I'm going to go to you for a sec because you live there and you have a lot of expertise on on Dublin Bay South. But Jen, can I ask you first, um, it's happening pretty quickly. Um, following the resignation of Owen Murphy and his retirement from politics. It used to be that governments liked to long finger elections for as long as possible. And in fact, they did that to ridiculous extents uh, about 10 years or so ago until I think a court case by by Pierce Doherty and Sinn Féin forced an election in Donegal. Now they're constrained to some extent, but it's interesting that they could have put this off till the autumn, but they've decided to go for it early. 
Yeah, they could have, and, and and they 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 haven't. I mean, the simplest explanation is that it is just better to get this done, um, you know, for a whole variety of reasons. But also, you would have to wonder: Are they considering perhaps, you know, if you look towards July, and what it's looking like now is that perhaps the rate will be moved next week, um, and that would give you a polling date. I would presume somewhere around the eighth of July, um, somewhere around that ballpark. And that will be the exact time that the government are expecting to really come into the, the, the this part of their stride in relation to the vaccination campaign. Um, if you look over to the UK, Boris Johnson um, went from being uh, uh, zero to hero effectively. Um, you know, the first handling, his handling of the pandemic start was woeful. And then now it seems he can do no wrong, even when really shocking things come out about how he handled it. And I think that there, I do believe there is a hope in government. And I was talking to some people in government yesterday about this, that they'll get to a stage in July where that will be their big, you know, their big selling uh, point that they have got 2.5 million people uh, fully vaccinated in July and maybe more. Um, And, you know, remains to be seen whether that bounce will will actually materialise or not. I have my doubts, if I'm being honest, because I do think um, that the by-election, you know, it's not like a general election, obviously, but I do think housing, even if it's not the number one issue in every every house in Dublin Bay South, the opposition will make it the issue. Sinn Féin will make it the issue. So, you know, I'm not so sure if, if, if the vaccine dividend will hold up, but I think that's part of their, their reasoning anyway. So let's talk about Harry about about Dublin Bay South. Uh, it it can be oversimplified what it is. It's quite a it's quite an interesting constituency. It's quite a complicated one. It covers multitudes. It is a Finnegale stronghold. It's also one of the most socially liberal constituencies in the country. Interestingly, it traditionally has uh, quite a low turnout in elections, and there there may be specific reasons about the, the the number of people who live in rented accommodation there. So there's quite a lot going on there, and some of those things offer opportunities to to different parties or different candidates yeah it's 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 uh it's often portrayed as a blue constituency as a very finnegal constituency and there's no doubt that it has some of the most affluent pockets in the country uh dublin four and dublin six mansions and there are areas of the constituencies of the constituency which are very rich uh, indeed and they have traditionally been uh finnegal uh, strongholds but it's a mixed constituency as you say, uh, Hugh, uh, geographically it extends from the Liffey uh, in the north as far as the River Dodder in the south and goes from the sea at Sandymount over as far as uh, Harl's Cross, parts of Harl's Cross and parts of Terranure uh, as well. And it takes in the city centre, of course, and the city centre uh, has, has become a place of residence in recent uh, years uh, it, the the demographic is interesting. The, it ha, it's it's a young constituency. Uh, a lot of people under the age of forty. It has one of the highest uh, percentage of rented private rented accommodation in the state. Almost fifty percent of those who are resident there are living in rented uh, accommodation. Even though there are areas of big affluence, there are also some blue collar areas. The South Docks, for example. Uh, Rings End and then pockets in Rathmines and Ranland. So it's, it's also been a, a place where people uh, live a, a transient life. There are very few people who have moved from the country to Dublin uh, who have not spent at least a period of their lives living in a bedsit or in a flat in Rathmines uh, or Ranland, even though that's, that's be- that complexion of that has begun to change uh, in recent years. And as you said, the turnout is one of the lowest in the country, which is surprising for uh, an affluent 
constituency. But that's really down to people who move into uh, the constituency temporarily, live in a flat, who register there and then after a couple of years move on and register elsewhere, uh, but don't deregister their vote in uh, Dublin 6 or Dublin 4 or indeed in Dublin 2. And their vote remains, even though they themselves no longer stay there and are no longer voting. And just another, uh, two other little uh, facts of note uh, are uh, that it has a very high proportion, unsurprisingly, of those who have third level qualifications. And in addition to that, a very high proportion of people who were not born in uh, Ireland uh, and um, many of those actually are not entitled to vote in the general election, though they can vote in local uh, elections and European elections if they're European citizens. And we've had this phenomenon in recent years of a lot of uh, new uh, residential property around Docklands, around Googletown, uh, as it's called. And that, uh, you know, has, has played a little bit into the thinking of parties as they approach this election. Jennifer, listen to Harry there. One of the things that strikes me about this constituency is that it's a illustration of how terrible our electoral register is and how we need reform in that regard. That, uh, as he says, I mean, listen, I have to be honest. I um, I lived for a good portion of my own twenties and thirties at different locations uh, in in that constituency, and I don't think I ever registered. Maybe I did once at the various apartments and flats and dingy mm-hmm. bedsits, as Harry oh. says, that I that I lived in over over that period of time, and I. Um, I, I, I did vote. I can't quite remember what way it worked. But basically, the system doesn't work and it doesn't work even more in, in Dublin Bay South than it does in most constituencies. So it's not actually the fact that people aren't bothering to get out and vote, or at least that's not the main fact. It's that the register doesn't reflect the people who actually live there. The As Harry says, the up to 50% of people who live in private rented accommodation. Yeah, absolutely. And similar to you, uh, Hugh, I also had my first flat in Ranala and it was so small that the, the sink was beside my bed. Ah, <laughs> oh, happy memories. Yeah, and my head touched the ceiling. Uh, yeah, I loved it though. I loved it. So yeah, uh, very familiar with the area myself. Um, and yeah, you're right. Uh, there, Like Harry pointed out, huge number of people, uh, I think 50% is the figure in private, some form of private rented accommodation in the constituency. And I think what you find is people who move into those flats like me, like you, like whoever it is now, and uh, maybe they register to vote, uh, maybe they don't. Uh, but if they do register to vote, you know, they move on because the nature of being in those kind of flats is you don't generally tend to stay there for all too long. You kind of move on to different stages of your life. Um, and those, obviously, that that vote is left behind if un- unless you move it on. And it does highlight exactly what you say, the need for this proper um, electoral register. We're still waiting on the Electoral Commission. Um, hopefully this is something that we'll, we'll see proper movement on this year because like, how many years now have we been talking about this, even on this podcast? Since I started here, we've been talking about this. Um, and the, the thing that strikes me about that is when we talk about the constituency having a low turnout, I mean, I think it had one of the lowest turnouts in the country in 2007 and 2011. Um, you know, who are those voters who would you think that they might vote for had they actually stayed in the area? I mean, you would be minded to think that people in the, the more affluent parts of the constituency who have their set vote would be maybe Fine Gael, and that perhaps the younger voters who are moving around it, or as Harry says, you know, a little bit more transient, that perhaps they will be more leaning towards left parties or Sinn Féin. So you'd have to wonder, the turnout obviously will hit everybody, but who will it hit the most? Um, and I would wonder, I'd have questions around that. Um, and, you know, I don't know whether it bolsters Fine Gael's chances or not. I mean, you mentioned there the fact that it's considered like a blue 
uh, it's considered constituency a stronghold of Gael. And like I was doing a bit of research into this just to become a total nerd here for a second. And obviously that constituency used to be the Dublin Southeast constituency. Well, pretty much all of that constituency. And, you know, Fine Gael effectively has had a seat there for decades, going right back, you know, you know, as far as you can go, basically. And, you know, because you have John A. Costello, Gareth Fitzgerald, uh, effectively holding a seat for the party for decades. And I was tracking kind of through the decades the, the percentage of the vote that they had. And throughout Fitzgerald's long time, he always had between 20% and 30% of first preference votes. That holds through throughout, throughout the 80s and 90s. Uh, even when two candidates are put on the ticket, they effectively come in at that percentage. It's a blip in 2002, no Fine Gael candidate was returned. And then if you look at, you know, the last couple of years, I mean, in, in 2020, obviously, we know what happened. We've talked about that before. But I think that's the reason why there's always been a solid vote uh, for Fine Gael in the constituency. Having said that, Harry had a really interesting nugget in his piece where he talked about how, I think, in only three by-elections, uh, in the last number of decades, has a, a sitting government managed to return a candidate. And that puts Fine Gael definitely on the back foot because there, that is true. That is very difficult for a government party to, to do that. And, you know, so I think that's why we're seeing Fine Gael kind of out pounding the pavements all throughout the constituencies because they know it's theirs to lose. And the difference between now and all the previous elections that I talked about going back decades is Sinn Féin and the fact that they have risen really to the to the stage they're at now. Everybody's watching them to see what will happen. So this is just like the last election was, you know, a complete change of for Irish politics. You wonder, will that be reflected, I suppose, in this by-election? And Harry, yes, you've noted as well that James Gagan and Fine Gael are out pounding the pavements already. That a, it's a it, with a turnout of I think you're predicting only about thirty percent or so. Get out the vote is what it's all about, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, fifty four percent was the turnout in the last general election, so um, it, it won't be quite half that. But turnouts for by elections tend to be traditionally low, so I, I think it could be as low as thirty percent. So it will all boil down to the get out the vote campaigns that each of the parties uh, are are going to do. Now, um, yeah, so only three of the last 34 by-elections, Noel Tracy won a seat for Fianna Fáil back in 1982 when Fianna Fáil was in government, albeit uh, for a very short period of time. And since then, only three by-elections have gone with government parties. And two of those, uh, Helen McEntee and Gabrielle McFadden, won seats after a very close relative had died. And then the third, uh, Patrick Nulty, one uh, after the late Brian Lenehan passed away in 2011, a couple of months after a general election where Labour had its best ever election. I was making the point that if that by-election had taken place a, a year later, uh, Labour would have been a distant uh, also-ran in that by-election. But having said that, I mean, uh, as by-elections as by go, I mean, Dublin Bay South is as good a chance uh, for a government party to win a by-election as any uh, other and uh, Fine Gael think that they should have won Dublin Midwest uh, when Mark Ward won it, but that they, they weren't sufficiently good at getting out their vote. So that's why uh, you'll see all the senior Fine Gael ministers, they, all the heavyweights have been out uh, 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 often and uh, widely in the constituency over the past uh, two weeks. And we'll continue to do so until Election Day uh, to try to get out that Fine Gael vote. And on a low uh, turnout, getting out your own vote will become crucial. But then again, Sinn Féin have always been very good at doing that as well. And um, I'm sure that Ona Bryn, um, who was the person who masterminded the Dublin Midwest by-election, uh, will have a similar plan or will be involved in a similar plan 
uh, for Dublin Bay South. And if Lynn Boylan, as is expected, is going to be the candidate, um, he'll have a double interest in ensuring a success uh, for the party. But it's a big ask for Sinn Féin. I've been spectacularly wrong and a lot of people, including Sinn Féin, have been spectacularly wrong in terms of how that party is going to do in the past. But it's a big leap for them to go from 16% to get that 50% uh, plus one. And they're going to have to attract transfers from everywhere. And I'm not sure if Sinn Féin are quite there yet in a constituency like this, uh, that they will be capable of mopping up the transfers from... uh, other uh, candidates. So the other person, I think, who is hoving into view as a possible uh, op- uh, opposition person is Ivana Bacic. But now, if Lynn Boylan is in the race, uh, Ivana Bacic's big challenge will be to stay ahead of Lynn Boylan, because uh, if she's eliminated before uh, Lynn Boylan, uh, the chances are that uh, James Gagan will win the seat. Uh, whereas if she stays ahead of Lynn Boylan, uh, she could actually uh, win the seat from James Gagan. That's what the thinking is among some party strategists at the moment. I tend to agree with that analysis at this moment in time. But Sinn Féin is unknown. You know, I think people, uh, there's a generation who have grown up uh, who, uh, you know, think that Sinn Féin doesn't carry original sin and have no difficulty in voting for the party. And uh, the party has is beginning to move away from its traditional kind of Republican and working class base uh, to attract votes uh, from from middle class areas and middle class constituencies as well. Not in the volumes of some of the more mainstream parties, but it's certainly beginning uh, to gouge at the margins there, certainly. But I still, I still think it's a long shot for Sinn Féin to win the seat. But then again, uh, at the beginning of July, I could be proven to be completely and totally wrong in uh, relation uh, to that. So uh, I think a lot of it is going to is going to depend on transfers and where the transfers are going to go, Hugh. Um, uh, uh, the Green uh, trans I don't think Fianna Fáil and the Greens will win the seat. So their, their transfers will be, will be critical. And I think that the uh, Fianna Fáil transfers will, will possibly go uh, in bulk uh, to, um, to the Fine Gael candidate. Uh, and I think Green Party ones will probably... Uh, disperse a little more. I think some will go to Fine Gael, uh, but some will also possibly go to Labour and then a lesser amount might go uh, to uh, Sinn Féin. Uh, so I, I think the, the, the destination of transfers from the Alterans uh, will be very interesting uh, to parse and to analyse. So um, even though the government hasn't um, won uh, uh, many by-elections, I think, you know, this constituency does provide an opportunity for a government party uh, to actually uh, win if they follow the right strategy and follow the right kind of get out the vote uh, type of campaign. So part of that strategy, Jen, is, I mean, Fine Gael themselves have very much been portraying this as a Fine Gael versus Sinn Féin um, contest. And my grand unifying theories of Irish politics is that those two parties do have a mutual interest in the moment at framing political debate in that way because they both stand to gain from it electorally by coalescing the centre-right and centre-left constituencies around them. But particularly in this constituency, doesn't it kind of suit Fine Gael to have Sinn Féin coming second? Because Sinn Féin are much less likely to overtake James Gagan of Fine Gael in the long run as the transfers go out than, say, for example... Uh, centre-left candidate, be they from the Greens or, as Harry says, seems to think it's more likely from Labour. Yes, it, it suits them, to not only suits them to have the, the sequence, uh, as you describe, but it also suits them to have the narrative that it's a Fine Gael, uh, Sinn Féin contest and that 
if they just work a little bit harder in Fine Gael this time, they won't have what happened, like Harry mentioned, with Ono Bryn and Mark Ward, uh, which is basically them saying to their voters, you know, get out and vote and don't think that this thing is in the bag. And it suits them to kind of present that as a two-way contest. But of course, that might not necessarily be so. Um, and, you know, you mentioned their transfers. I went through last night, because that's the kind of exciting life that I lead, <laughs> transfers uh, from 2020, uh, just to see kind of what the what the patterns were. And Sinn Féin, where, where did they get their transfers from 2020? So Chris Andrews got massive boost from both People Before Profit and the SOC Dems, those candidates um, were eliminated. On the final count, also got a good chunk of votes from Kevin Humphreys uh, in Labour, who actually was very transfer friendly to everybody, but particularly Fine Gael. Um, and I think it tells me there's a strong kind of left transfer pattern in the constituency. And like, if you look at where Sinn Féin are popular in the constituency at the moment, um, I think uh, Chris Andrews probably has a good base around Rings End, probably a good base uh, around the South Inner City, uh, Sandy Mount parts of the constituency. Um, and what I think you'll find actually is when the, the, the votes come in that they will have spread that uh, base further out into the constituency. And the question is, how far? And, you know, it's it's such an interesting one. A little nugget that I came across um, last night was when... Uh, Andrews was uh, elected 2020. He, he put out a tweet where he talked about, um, he said basically that 100 years previously, 1918, the constituency had had elected a unionist, um, talking about, in his mind, how much it had changed. And I think uh, after doing a bit of digging, I think he was talking about Maura Stockwell. Um, but anyway, that's just a little interesting nugget for you. It just shows you, I suppose, how the constituency has changed, <laughs> though I know we're going quite far back now. But yeah, the, the, the transfers are, are so interesting to me. And like I was looking then as well at, you know, the Labour Party. Um, obviously, the Ivana Bacic is the candidate. She's very well known. I mean, she she's an, an academic, huge national profile, uh, campaigned on social issues, you know, abortion rights, equality issues, you name it. And she's 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 campaigned on it. And it gives her, I think, a very strong uh, starting ground in that constituency, which has been known to be very uh, socially liberal, had one of the highest, I think, uh, if not the highest votes, yes, uh, in the repeal the eighth campaign. And like for the Labour Party, I think Harry described Ivana Bacic as being the dark horse. And I would agree with that because of all those issues that I've mentioned, but also because that constituency has had such a strong Labour vote previously. Um, I'm thinking of Rory Quinn, who was TD all the way from 1982 to his retirement 2016. And the question is, is that Labour vote still there? I mean, it, it it it's tied to the fortunes of the party because in 2011, they took two seats, Rory Quinn and, Kev- and Kevin Humphreys. And between Fine Gael and Labour at the time, they took 60% of all the first preference votes. And then, of course, we know things really took a turn for Labour. Um, and once again, looking at the transfers for Labour, in 2020, Eamon Ryan um, obviously came, uh, you know, elected in the first count. Um, his surplus, where did that go? Labour, who did really well out of the green surplus. Um, and they can expect transfers too from the SOC Dems, from PBP. So, you know, I think that's really interesting to see the interplay between the different parties. 
Can I express a note of scepticism on that? Yeah. And it's as follows. You're right that there is a Labour tradition in that constituency, as is the case in other constituencies where the Labour's vote has more or less has more or less disappeared in more in more recent years. Ivana Bacic has a national profile. She's very well known. You hear see her a lot on the airwaves. She's a respected academic and an activist, as you say. But she's failed before mm-hmm. as a as an electoral candidate in two other constituencies already, and that has to count for something. And the fact is that Kevin Humphreys did have a geographical support base within the constituency, I think also towards that Docklands Rings End end of it. So does Ivana Bacic have that kind of boots on the ground kind of uh, support that would allow her to get into that crucial second place or get her nose ahead of Sinn Féin? That seems a stretch to me. It's a it's a big jump from where Labour were at the last election. Oh, it's a massive jump. And, you know, I'm not saying that she will, she'll do it, but I'm saying that she, I think, has perhaps a better chance than people think. Um, but you're right. Like, if you look at Kevin Humphreys, you know, he had a very strong base, again, around the Ringsend area. I went out canvassing with Kevin before and, like, he knew every single person who passed by name. He had that knowledge, you know, of every home. He could tell me everything about everybody in the area. And no, I don't think that she has that level of knowledge, but I think the party is throwing everything they have behind her. And I think they think she has a better chance than perhaps commentators are giving her credit for, because like Fine Gael, like you said, are presenting this as Fine Gael versus Sinn Féin. Um, and, you know, it, it it wouldn't surprise me, I'm saying, if she did better than perhaps people were saying. And like I said, just from going through those transfers, they'd be extremely transfer friendly, I think. Harry, can I ask you, um, most of the parties have declared their candidates yet. And I, as you said earlier, I think Cormac O'Quinn uh, um, reports in today's newspaper, it seems pr- extremely likely now that Lynn Boylan will be the Sinn Féin candidate. The thing we haven't discussed and you've already ruled out is the fact that Eamon Ryan topped the poll at the at the last general election. And there seems to be no expectation that the Greens can perform at anywhere close to that level now. I suppose the first question is they haven't nominated their candidate yet. There's going to be a, a decision made by before the weekend. How important is the candidate they name? And are they completely out of the race? And is that also what would benefit Batchik? Because it's the same centre-left vote, really. I think the short answer to that is yes. Actually, Batchik does have a base in the constituency. She lives in Portobello and her mother lives in Terranure. So she has a stronger connection uh, to this constituency than Dublin Central or Dunlira, where she has contested elections before. She actually did very well in Dunlira. But um, uh, they, the party, for one reason or another, decided not to continue with her as a candidate in that constituency. So she is well embedded in, in, in the constituency, uh, albeit on the other side uh, to uh, Kevin uh, um, Humphreys. Uh, just in relation to the Greens, yeah, the Greens uh, is, is very interesting. The civil war that seemed to beset the party over the past year seems to have uh, died down a bit. And I think the uh, contest in... Uh, Dublin Bay South is a contest between who's be- going to become the uh, the 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 uh, putative successor to Eamon Ryan when he eventually decides uh, to step down from the Doyle. And the two candidates are very strong: Hazel Chew, very high profile mayor of Dublin, and Claire Byrne, a former advisor to Eamon Ryan, but who has been a uh, councillor in the South Inner City uh, for some time now, and is also uh, very well known uh, within the constituency. It has a strong organisation. Um, I don't think it's going to um, uh, it's going to uh, reach the heights that it did in uh, twenty twenty, where Ryan got twenty two point four percent of the vote and topped the poll. 
uh, he um, he got elected on the first count. Hazel Chu, of course, and Byrne did uh, amazingly in the 2019 local elections. Uh, but the tide has got out a little bit. Uh, you know, I, I was making the point in the piece I wrote a few weeks ago uh, that going into government is like uh, buying a new car. You know, once you drive out of the showroom, uh, you immediately lose a couple of grand of value. And even though uh, both of the Green uh, uh, no, potential nominees are, are saying that they're in it to win, I just think it would be a bit of a stretch. Uh, it, it's, it's likely, well, it's not, not, not 100% likely, but uh, Claire Byrne looks like the candidate who might emerge out of that contest, according to uh, Green people locally. And it's interesting for Fianna Fáil as well. Fianna Fáil have always had a seat, well, not always, but there's always been a, a, at least one Fianna Fáil seat in the constituency, uh, the running Deirdre Conroy, who is a an interesting person. She has a very interesting backstory. Uh, she's a barrister and she's also a, 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 an architectural uh, historian. Uh, and um, she um, she did relatively well in 2019. She uh, she ran in a neighbouring constituency in the general election. Uh, but I think what Fianna Fáil are doing is just trying to maintain or consolidate its vote. It's had some very weird uh, campaign videos uh, that it has put out. Yeah, tell us about those. Well, they've just been on the wrong side of corny. I think uh, I'd invite listeners to go and look at them themselves. I'm not going to try to even attempt no, to describe what they're like. Uh, but they involve a lot of very respectable TDs doing stuff that they would not normally do in their lives and looking a little bit <laughs> foolish as a result. Uh, but I think it's maybe Fianna Fáil experimenting, uh, just trying, uh, um, trying... Perhaps there's a, a, a canvasser at the door there because the dog is barking in the background there. But um, uh, perhaps they're, they're, they're trying to experiment and try to see uh, um, new uh, ways in which they can campaign. Uh, but um, it's, they've got lots of hits on the basis of it. But uh, unfortunately, uh, I don't think they're going to be anywhere uh, near uh, the final line when the votes are uh, counted. So I think Fianna Fáil and the Greens, I think, uh, will not win. Uh, but their transfers will be crucial in determining the outcome of this by-election. I think we now know that uh, Harry's dog is a Fianna Fáil supporter, given that reaction to what he, <laughs> what he was saying about them there. I do think, um, Jen, that Fianna Fáil's TikTok strategy is still in its infancy, judging by what I've seen so far. I think that's really too kind of you, Hugh. <laughs> no, like in all seriousness, what are they thinking? Those videos and... They're just so bad, you know, they're they're bloody awful. And it's not even, you know, sometimes parties do this thing where they're like, it's so bad, it's good, everyone's talking about it. No, everyone's cringing their hearts out, hoping to God they don't do another one. Um, and like, in fairness, like what harm say you? But uh, if you're trying to appeal to younger voters who are swinging Sinn Féin for a whole variety of reasons, I think they're just going to laugh at you and move on. But that's that's my take on that anyway. Can I ask you another thing? It just strikes me. I think it's probably unprecedented in Irish by-elections is that the, the gender makeup of the of the field, uh, certainly of the front runners, is interesting. The, the front runner is a male barrister. We've remarked mm-hmm. already that he comes from a very long line of Fine Gael blue bloods and legal eagles. There's no shortage of barristers and lawyers <laughs> from the other parties. There's there's a lot of political activists, young young or youngish women, um, running in this election, um, who offer, uh, to my mind, quite a refreshing set of options. You know, there's quite a few of them. I'd quite like to see in the doll. Absolutely, and I agree. And um, I think it's actually br- it's brilliant to see so many really really strong female candidates. Um, and you're right. There's a, a lot of barristers. Um, you know, and there's always this 
you know, the sort of idea of Dublin Bay Souths being very affluent. And yes, there are parts of it that are, but there are parts of it that aren't as well. But when you see all these barristers, it sort of does add credence to that theory. Um, but the thing that strikes me is that a lot of the candidates are very kind of socially liberal. Like, let's look at the sock dams. Um, I think they are probably going to run Sarah Dirk. And, and you know, she was lead organiser in the, the Waking the Feminists campaign. I mean, look at Ivana Bacic, we've already mentioned her kind of credentials and her history in terms of, of canvassing. Uh, same for Hazel Chu, she's on the board of Hollis Street, you know, very outspoken um, in terms of maternity care, uh, in terms of, you know, providing that for proper maternity care for, for women. Um, same for Claire Byrne. I, I think really a lot of the candidates display those credentials and if I could just go back to a point that Harry made uh, about Fianna Fáil you know they've got Deirdre Conroy she took that case in relation to the availability of um, uh, termination care in the case of fatal fetal abnormality you know Miss D uh, in that landmark case um, all really strong credentials and the thing about uh, Fianna Fáil is it's they have this candidate who um, has that strong track record but obviously what works against her is that she's quite new to the game really Um and that probably will run against her. One comment that struck with me at the very beginning of this, uh, I think in the day after Owen Murphy resigned, was Michal Martin, when he was asked about the by-election, he said, well, you know, it's not always the case that you put your by-election candidate forward to win it. You might be thinking, we'll put your candidate forward and they'll have a good chance of winning the following general election. So it's not all about winning. And then kind of very quickly clarified I'm not saying that I don't think we can win this. I'm just saying, but it was very telling comment. I think that he made, um, and people interpreted it that way as well. That there isn't a great expectation that that Fianna Fáil will will do well at all. Um, and you, also, you can't escape the issue of polling, where the party is at at the polls. I mean, they love to tell you that they don't pay attention, but of course they do. Of course they do. Just in relation to, to Lynn Boylan, um, she, she has a, a proven track record in relation to climate change as well, and that might make her attra- attractive as a person who might take uh, green transfers should she stay ahead of the green uh, uh, candidate. I think she might be slightly vulnerable as well in terms of her location. I think she has been building up a base in Dublin South West, and uh, she'll have to explain, you know, to which um, constituency she is going to give fealty. I mean, if she's elected... Uh, in this election in Dublin Bay South. Is she going to stay in Dublin Bay South? Harry, can I ask you about, actually, about geography and how it works in Dublin constituencies? And maybe I'm just head in the clouds or naive about this. Does it really matter at toss to a voter in Terenure if somebody lives in uh, Rathfarnham or something? Is the, you know, is, is, is the hatred, the clan hatred between those two suburbs, does it run so deep that one wouldn't vote for the other? It seems a bit unlikely to me. Uh, well, I mean, uh, in the early days of the state, we had a situation much as they they have they have had in England, where you have uh, um, they had MPs who lived in London and lived their whole lives in London, who were representing far flung constituencies in the northeast of England if they were Labour, and in the shires if they were Conservative. We had a lot of that in the early days of the state, where we had Dublin based TDs who were representing Clare, Roscommon, uh, uh, various constituencies uh, in Tipperary and Kilkenny. Uh, but that that has changed a, a lot in recent years. It's it's less of a phenomenon in Dublin than it is down the country. But voters don't tend to like um, the fact that that TDs are commuting into uh, their home constituencies. Uh, but we've you've seen it. Frances Fitzgerald was Dublin based south, and then she moved out to Dublin Midwest while 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 remaining uh, a resident of Dublin based south. Uh, I remember Pat Kerry when he was a Fianna Fáil TD. Uh, for uh, for Dublin 
uh, northwest, I think, was living out in Ashburn in County Meath uh, at the time. So, um, but I think that that people expect the TD wherever they live uh, to be uh, to to be responsive to the constituency. And if somebody is in a constituency for a while, uh, as a you know, using it as a placemat essentially before moving on to another constituency, uh, that is something that might be taken into consideration uh, by voters. I think voters don't really mind if the person lives in the constituency, but they do want them to be uh, loyal to the constituency and look after the interests of constituents. Uh, within that constituency. Uh, Jan referred earlier to, to the kind of the issues uh, that would play into this by-election, Hugh, and housing and PUP, I think, will play into it for certain demographic, for younger voters, especially those who are renting as opposed to those who own. But I think there will definitely be a... a uh, we talked about the rebound uh, that Pascal Donoghue was referring to at the start. I think there certainly will be a some form of a feel-good uh, factor uh, from from vaccination. Vaccination has continued apace. And I think those who have been vaccinated uh, will probably uh, consider that that act will, will play a part in the votes that they cast. And I, I think that that would probably favour government uh, parties. How big that vaccination bounce will be is, is very hard to determine. But I do think that will also be a factor in terms of the uh, final outcome uh, of this by-election. And of course, the older you are, the older you are, the more likely you are to have been fully vaccinated by the time we we, we get around to the election. It's funny to listen to what you say there, Harry, because as I think my own my own grandfather was a TD for Donegal for thirty years, but he lived in Dublin Bay South or what is now Dublin Bay South. So I think that bears out that uh, that truth to some extent. James Gagan doesn't live in the constituency; he lives a good five kilometres away, <laughs> I think, Jen, in yeah. somewhere in in Dublin, Rathdown. But he's a rather implausible candidate for to speak on behalf of generation rent which i was rather surprised to hear he was claiming to be mm. isn't he he lives in a he's got a, a 750,000 euro house yeah yeah and this has come up and um he was out with leo varadkar in herbert park on sunday and i had the honor and privilege to work on sunday on, on the most beautiful day of the year it was absolutely fine not bitter at all um but uh so i went along to watch him canvas for a little while and uh, do a doorstep with with himself and tanisha and i asked him about that you know you say that you want to be the voice of this generation, that, you know, he went before the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party, uh, I think it was last week, and pleading for their help effectively, asking them anything they could do, come out for a canvas, leaflet drop, anything, everything, will be very grateful, he said. And he said, I believe, during that meeting, that this, how the housing crisis is a generational issue, and that, you know, he wants to be the voice for the people who are locked out effectively, and then it emerged, of course, that he had bought a house, um, uh, which I think cost around €750,000. Now, I asked him, you know, can you still be that voice for this generation of people who who can't afford to rent, let alone buy? And he said that he was very lucky um, with his wife and very, very lucky to secure that house. And he wanted, effectively what he's saying, he wanted that for everybody else. But I don't think it does the party any favours Firstly, to have housing is the number one issue because obviously they're on the back foot. They've been in government for a very long time now. These are their housing policies. Um, but secondly, then to claim that you will kind of represent these voters. And then this comes out, it obviously doesn't look great. Like, let's call a spade a spade here. Um, the other thing I was wondering about Fine Gael was, um, you know, we will find out more details this day, but we know that they are reforming the property tax and that for 33% of people, they will go up at least one band and for 3% of people, they'll go up more and it'll be at least 90 to 100 euro for those people who are going to experience uh, a rise. And you would wonder about how that impacts 
people in that constituency who, you know, we've talked about the disparity between affluent sections and less affluent uh, parts of the constituency. Uh, Is it really great timing for them to be announcing increases in property tax bills when they're running in this constituency? Uh, And then, like Harry said, the the impact of tapering off the PUP on other people in the constituency who may be younger. Uh, And it strikes me that in every way, perhaps not every way, that's probably not fair, but in many, many ways, they're going into this thing on the back foot couple of gaffes here. Yeah. And when I say gaffes, I mean G-A-F-F-E, not actual gaffes to clarify. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it does strike me that they're kind of going into this on, on the back foot and you'd wonder what will happen or how this will work against them in relation to their budget announcements, their economic announcements. Okay, briefly, Harry, let's look at the, the numbers that the parties need to get to in order to be winners. What do Fine Gael need to get in terms of first preference votes to think that they're in the driving seat? Yeah, they had about 27% after the last um, uh, election. Sorry about the dog, as as discovered another canvas coming in. They had about 27% after the last uh, general election. That will clearly not be enough. So they will need to be in the low 30s to mid 30s at the very least and then rely on transfers from their government uh, partners because they're not going to get many transfers uh, from the opposition. I think similarly for Sinn Féin, if Sinn Féin uh, uh, has any hope of winning the seat, it would also need to be up around 30%. Kevin Humphreys, I think, got about 79 or 8% in the 2020 uh, election. Um, he will need, uh, or Labour will need to be, you know, multiples of that. They need to be up over 25%. Uh, I think they they will probably be more transfer friendly uh, than, than other parties. Uh, so they might be able to kind of come back in with a slightly lower first preference vote and still steal the seat uh, at the uh, end. Uh, for the Greens, the Greens would need to uh, improve on Eamon Ryan's 22%. And I just really can't see that happening at the moment just because they're in government. And Fianna Fáil would essentially need to double uh, or more uh, the vote that Jim O'Callaghan got in 2020. And I just don't really see that happening uh, either. But as I said at the start, I have been spectacularly wrong before, uh, Hugh, and I could be spectacularly wrong uh, again. And if I am... Uh, I'm sure social media will remind me about it every single day of the week. Oh, yeah, I'll remind you about it as well. Don't worry about that. But Jen, what do you think? What do I think? You don't want me to make a prediction now, do you? Tell me you don't want me to make a prediction. Can you make a prediction, please? (laughs) No, absolutely not. Same as Harry. I'll tell you what, I'll make you this promise. I will make a prediction when the campaign has actually started and the posters are up and the writ has been moved and uh, I've had time to delve into even more nerdy facts. Uh, I promise you I will, but just not today. And of course, we don't even know the exact date. What's the likely date? What are people in the know saying about the date? I think July 8th, somewhere around then. Yeah, early July, certainly. Um, um, and 8th of July. It looks like, like it's the most likely date uh, as of now. And a last question, because this is the first election that will take place during or in the immediate aftermath of a pandemic. Is that Will that have any effect upon the way in which both canvassing takes place and the election itself is held. Yes, it will. Um, I mean, they, they're not, they're not, none of the candidates are canvassing at the moment. And if they do, they'll be chased from the doors. So they're, they're, what they're doing is that they're leaflet, leafleting, uh, they're using uh, social media. And as Jan discovered last Sunday, they're going to the sunniest parks mm-hmm. with the mostest people uh, to, to not to press the flesh, but to, to, to do distant kind of waves and let people know uh, that they're there. So it's going to be strange in terms of that. And that's why some commentators have said that uh, profile, uh, that profile of candidates, which is always important anyway, 
going into the elections will probably be uh, particularly crucial uh, in this election, uh, given the fact that that candidates won't have as much an, of an opportunity uh, to meet constituents face to face. All right. And any canvasser is brave enough to go to Harry McGee's house know to watch out for his dog at this stage as well. So we shall leave it there. It's going to be very interesting. So it's about a month to go to that election and we'll cover it all the way. Thanks to Harry and to Jen and to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We'll be back very soon indeed. Do remember, though, that you can mail us with your thoughts and your questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, thanks very much for listening.